You are now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. We get into the journey of their lives because I believe that your feelings of being successful, enough, worthy, lovable, whatever it is, are not out there somewhere. Once I have this job, do this, have a successful career relationship, then I will feel enough forever and ever. You'll feel it for a little bit, but it likely will be fleeting if you keep putting it outside of yourself. On today's episode, I have Ben Lee, celebrated singer, songwriter, producer, composer, and activist. He is an amazing and interesting human. I loved getting into his journey. I think you're going to love him too if you don't already. And just a quick note, please subscribe to the podcast. If, and if you haven't yet, leave me a review. And if you do, I'll send you a gift from my product line. Just screenshot your review and send it to podcast at yourjoyologist.com. And make sure to share about the podcast on social media, tagging me at yourjoyologist, and I'll enter you to win a gift box of many products. So just share the episode, tag me, leave a review, screenshot it, or just do it because you want to. All right, let's get right to the episode. You, from what I can tell, became a known musician fairly young. Did you always, I mean, how did you get even involved in music? Was that something, you know, from family or? Yeah, I mean, when I was probably about, I'm trying to think, when I was maybe eight years old, my then probably 87-year-old Russian Jewish grandmother put the hard word on me to take up piano. For, she said, you know, she was like, Benjamin, you don't have to be Beethoven, but you must, it's nice to play. You have to be able to play, to sit down at a party, play. So it was very like seen as like, you know, it's just one of those things that were kind of like uh, expected within uh, my family, that you had some basic competence on a musician, as a musician. And, and honestly, like, you know, all my siblings and cousins and everything all did it. And but there's only one person other than me who took up music kind of seriously. So it was just almost like more a cultural thing within the family. Um, Cause I'd had some, like I had a great uncle who was the court violinist for Tsar Nicholas in Russia. And then another, another great uncle who was um, his name, he played under the name Sasha Berliner. And he was in like a gypsy band in the 20s. Um, he used to hang out with Einstein and stuff. And um, so there was this sort of like gypsy music thing in the family. And it was just seen as like, you know, learn an instrument. But then it, w- it wasn't until I simultaneously probably like we started getting into music on my own and wanted to learn guitar that I started thinking of it as a possible career or something like that. But I just kind of did it myself. You know, it was like, I remember um, there was a thing, we had a newspaper on the street which was sort of like the village voice in sydney and it had one page that was like industry info and it said so you've you've got a band and you're making a demo what do you do with it and it was like you need a thing called a bio and you need photos and i just literally followed all the instructions and just i I took out all my cassettes and i copied down the addresses of the record labels and i sent them these packages and then it said i was 14 
And then it said, call one week after you send it, check they got it. Call another week later and check that they... So that's my like Virgo side. Like it really like tapped into just like do the checklist, just do it. That's and lo amazing. and behold, there was like this, Yeah, there was like a little punk label in Sydney that like I called, no one was interested in the music and I called this one label and I said, hi, this is Ben from Noise Addict calling. That was my band. And I said, uh, just wondering if you got my tape. And the voice of the other end came out, Ben, your tape stood out like dog's balls. And that was, uh, that was the start of my career. So wait, that was when you were 14? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so you're just, okay, piano lessons or whatever. We learn piano, but then you just start interested in guitar. I did for like two years and then I like, I wanted to switch to guitar. Yeah. But I'm, did you have like guitarists in your family or was that something like mom and dad, I buy me a guitar for Christmas? Well, my sister like, had a guitar and my, my sister had a guitar that she'd played for a few weeks, you know, okay. like uh, during her teenage so it was laying years. around. Let yeah, me try it was in the, I remember it was in, <laughs> in the hallway closet in its case. And I was like, we've got one. Let me learn on it. And uh, yeah, that's it. Okay. So you just picked it up, started playing. And then, but also you formed a band. You weren't just like sending your stuff off. Yeah. Like, let me make up a song. So how was that? You're just and even the with band, buddies at school. It was just a sheer act of will. You know, like, like I was, I knew one guy his older brother was a drummer. So he had a drum kit. So I said to this guy, you want to play the drums in my band? This is the, the younger brother. Cause I knew he, I knew he had access. He to doesn't it. even like play like, drums. Sure. Like, uh- no, he barely played it. And then my other, my other friend, he played guitar too, but he had this like effects pedal that made it sound like a bass. And I was like, you're the bass player. And um, it was, I, I mean, this is why I consider myself very lucky to have been exposed to punk rock the attitude even more so than the music that it's literally like, what can you make with what you've got? And I think in so many situations in my life, I've returned to sort of the punk rock ideals of what creativity can be of just going like, well, what's in front of me? What can I make with what I have? And from there you can go off on a lot of interesting adventures. Yeah. That's so, I mean, I don't, you know, I'd somewhat know. I know punk music from myself getting into punk music, but I wouldn't like ever consider that I was that. But for me, when I think of punk, I basically would feel like fuck the rules and fuck perfection. So like, yeah. sort of like, you know, like, so like, yeah, like, all right, whatever. Like, you know, what, you know, like, let's just make shit happen. Like, so yeah, you want this idea. And so often we do stop ourselves or talk ourselves off because, oh, this has to look this way or I have to do all these steps or be all polished before I can even say I want to do something. So I love that. Well, there was a great, there was a great like punk rock in the form that I experienced. It was in like what you call like the lo-fi home recording movement of the early nineties, where you could get a four track for like $250, a Tascam tape machine. And I was into music that was being made on that, like Liz Fair and Sebado and Daniel Johnston. And so it was like this time where the, the punk had been passed down and it was now like, no matter how weird you are, you could make something in your bedroom and it could come out, you know? Whereas before that, in the 80s, everything had been very like, you had to be in slick studios with expensive right. mics and know how to play your instruments. And lo-fi music to me was really like the invitation into a way of thinking about music. I'm just laughing at, you had to right. know how to play your instruments. <laughs> The, the biggest, the biggest lie about the music industry. 
Oh my. So, okay. So you put these people together and I mean, yeah. Did you just then, I guess with punk music, it's sort of just go for it. Like in many ways, like everybody just play is a good way to even just start. Like how we're going to write a song. Just go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, like there's some people, um, there are some artists who I think are that the art form itself is where they seek to innovate. Right. Like, um, like i mean there's so many like great musicians who the way they approach the craft and technique they broaden what's possible through their interaction with the model they're using the guitar chord structures harmonies whatever it is for me music was more like a vehicle it was something i could get into to get me somewhere mm. And um, I've never been too obsessed. Like, I do like innovative music. Like, I like music that um, pushes me out of my comfort zone and feels new and all of that kind of thing. But for me, it was pragmatic in that, like, I saw it as functional. Like, music could allow me to have a different experience than other teenagers were having. Because I got to bust out of my, like, suburban bubble and meet people in bands and appeal to different types of teenage girls and you know it was like a different world and um and in some ways i still think of my relationship to music as a vehicle in that it allows me to explore things and take me places and go on adventures but i've never claimed to be like ahead of my time musically i, I don't think that's an area where my innovation is necessarily that's not like my zone of genius but in the sense of way I look at what I can do with music, like the way I can play with this thing as a whole, this thing called a music career, this thing called collaboration, this thing called messaging, getting my psyche out there into the world, using music for it. I do think that's an area where I'm more innovative and, and more of a sort of outlier in terms of how I, how I consider what a music career can even be. Yeah. And going back to the beginning then, I mean, it just is interesting that like, okay, get into music, you get into music and then like you stumble, like also before you had stumbled across that like article or whatever, were you like, oh, I'm going to, you know, like we get a record deal. Like that's just what you do, right? Like, okay, I formed a band. So I record your deal. Or like, did that initiate yeah, in you? Yeah. Like, oh no, okay. That's the next steps. Or you already were like, so how do you do this? Yeah. Like. Yeah, because I, I, I didn't know how you got there, but I was into like Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses and bands that were like, you idolized them, you know? And it seemed like they had gone through this, uh, they crossed past these barriers into this other world being rock stars, where it's almost like you become transformed into something totally different. And I, I didn't know what the steps were, but I knew, okay, you had a band and you had songs. And then you had a logo or whatever you had, and then you had to like put it together what the steps were to get there. And, and so I just followed clues. That's what I've always done. I've always looked out for um, information that I could use. And I, I, I think information is, like our experience is loaded with information. There's information, it's been more so than ever yeah. now, but not just in terms of the internet and social media and everything. I mean, in terms of like, when you talk to people, when you watch movies, when you, um, when you read a book, when you like, there's information in your friends' experiences and in interviews with other artists. Uh, and 
I've been very much a student of information in my life. And um, you can, it makes you powerful to study and to be receptive to information and then to learn how to discern good information from bad information. And yeah. Yeah, I totally get that. And like different topic, but similar, you know, just like Instagram or social media and people will be like, how do you always create so much content? Like, you know, that's how people talk. And <laughs> friends will ask me that. And I'm like, yeah, but it's like you're saying, like information, because I pay attention. I pay attention to like what people are saying and feeling or that. So then I always have things to say or to respond to because I can see that people are hurting or people are struggling with this or myself. What am I struggling with constantly? Because we're constantly, yeah, there's information everywhere. <laughs> you can like, I was like, I'm not even trying yeah. to put out content. It's just I'm aware of information. <laughs> and like, how can I? Show? Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting because it's like, um, you know, there's it's a very fine line to walk as a person who shares your inner life externally, which more and more so we all are becoming that, but there's inevitably we fall into moments of um, self-indulgence and privilege and having an entitled feeling that just because they're our thoughts, they deserve to be out there or, or, you know, or whatever. But, um, but at the same time, I think if you are a creative person, you know, my wife and I were talking about this last night, how neither of us have, like, have ever had like long-term plans for our career. We've just gone sort of like moment by moment. But what you find is that if you follow what you're interested in and you talk about what you're interested in and you really follow your own curiosity, you inevitably appear interesting. <laughs> to other people it's like in, it's like how they say boring boring people get bored interested people are interesting and, and I, I just think at the end of the day I post on social media about things I'm interested in because I, I use it as a place to explore my passions and my um, my questions and my desires and my struggles and my hopes and and I think that's what music is too you know it's like a container uh, to figure out who you are and the more interested you are in the world and what it means to be a human and all of that all of that's going to show up in your artwork yeah yeah and that's what i'm always sharing whether it's a video or a post or something is is really something i needed to hear (laughs) and so i'm like oh if i needed this reminder i bet there's other people so yeah it can feel like oh who needs to hear my voice again or whatever but i'm like if i'm coming it from the intention of hey maybe maybe this will help somebody else not like everyone listen to all powerful me (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah totally okay back to you <laughs> music yeah, yeah so at 14 though when you get this record deal like how many songs did you guys even have that you had i think i had like you know 10 or 15 oh, you or did. something um yeah but i remember like i did this thing where i um i kind of listened to nirvana songs and and different songs i liked and i just worked out the structure and i remember i wrote down intro verse chorus verse chorus solo double chorus end and i just saw it as like it was almost mathematical um i saw how oh so you create those sections and then that becomes and um so i think in in some ways for me my (laughs) that type of mathematical thinking mixed with my own chaotic creativity is partly why I've been an effective person because it's like following the instructions in the back of that magazine. (laughs) I kind of love formula. I I know that they're limited, 
And, but that's why I've kind of felt like acoustic guitars. Like I like them. There's six strings on them. I, I like, I haven't gotten like, considering I've been playing acoustic guitar for 32 years, I haven't gotten that much better <laughs> at it. Um, my songs are not that much more complex. Um, but I sort of like the limitations of it. Like I like structures. So in some ways, when you're trying to get a project moving, falling in love a little bit with the structures and the frameworks can be helpful. Yeah, I love that. And that's it. Yeah, I'm sure that's for a lot of artists that would like, they're like, no, like resist the structure. Yeah. Like, but that really, in some ways, there can be freedom in that structure. And like, yeah, like you're like, okay, let me just focus on this part of it and this part of it. So you back then were able to like see a structure, plug it in to like write the songs and get it, get it out there. Yeah, I didn't find songwriting that complicated. I found it sort of like kind of simple. Like I could see that like, your major thesis was your chorus where you had to have an idea that you was worth coming back to. And then you'd have little details thrown in, in the verses that would be a bit more like, you know, like taking the back roads and then you'd come out to the Vista again in the choruses. And um, it just seemed kind of like common sense, I suppose. You have know? you ever, and have you thought about teaching songwriting? <laughs> I'm like, I, mean, I'm I, like, I, I feel I, like people are like, wait, <laughs> I spoke, I, I did, a, I spoke at like a couple of things like that, like at music <laughs> festivals where they were like a little course on songwriting or whatever. But the thing that's weird is like, it sort of depends what type of mind you yeah. have. Like, because my mind goes kind of far out there, those structures are not limiting to me. But for people that are extremely rigid in their thinking, they might need to be a little looser and more playful in their approach in order to balance themselves out. So I really don't, I mean, I produce, I think the closest thing to like teaching is like kind of producing records where, which I've done a few of. And there are times where you can help the artist use some of these rules and some of these tricks in order to be more effective in their, um, in what they're trying to deliver and what they're trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and so then what was your signed to a label at 14 in Australia, a punk label? What was that whole experience like at the beginning? Well, I mean, and through it, because you well, that was yeah. with that band, you guys put out several albums, right? Yeah, we did a few things. And then I was also just recording acoustic guitar into my boombox. And then labels were hearing that stuff. And I mean, what was really weird is that like at 15, when my first album came out, um, I was on, you know, then I got, I was signed to the Beastie Boys label and first of them, Sonic Youth had put out one of my records. And I was like, I remember like the face or one of those British magazines going, this is the coolest teenager on the planet. Whereas I was like, I was just, um, you know, just a pimply kid stuck in Australia, just like trying to find girls to make Well, that's what I was wondering, like, like in Australia... Yeah. Like, cause I don't know. I only, I've been, I, I was a sound engineer and then I toured as a joyologist for artists oh, for cool. years, but so yeah, I've been yeah. Australia several times, but only on tour. But yeah, what I imagine, I'm yeah. just like, what would that be like to be like a rock star sort of, but in Australia, it seems like a much different experience than like living in LA or, you know, especially being that young and like, so yeah, you were. Well, in, yeah. Yeah. In America, um, you know, my records were selling like say 30 or 40,000 copies which is quite small, but it was like, that was an indie career. Yeah. But in Australia, it's a smaller population. So my records weren't even selling a thousand copies. So I was not, I was <laughs> known as someone that had like 
got a certain amount of like buzz around the world, but this was kind of pre-internet. Yeah. Like, so no one was aware really of what was happening to you in other countries. Even I wasn't aware in some ways of how the records were connecting. Like I'd get sent a press pack a few months after an album came out and I'd see good reviews, and, but it wasn't like the way it is now where the heat that's generated around a new artist, it's just this instant rise and they're like, suddenly everything's coming. It just wasn't like that yeah. at all. Like I just was going about my life and every, every few days the label would call and be like, do you want to do an interview with the NME? And I was like, what's that? And they're like, oh, British music news. You know, so I, I in some ways had um, a very kind of um, fortunate exposure to early kind of celebrity or whatever where my life essentially didn't change at all. Like I would tour on school holidays. On weekends, I could go down play in Melbourne or up to Brisbane. But it was not what, say, like I had this, there was this other band around the same time called Silverchair that got massive. They were an Australian teenage band also. And they were like top of the pops type thing and girls chasing me down the street. And as much as I was jealous of that, I had a much more like um, niche experience. Like I was kind of more welcomed into like the intelligentsia, like the hipster underground which is, you know, it's awesome, but it's not like your parents' friends know what that is or, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just like, it's a different so that's thing. That's what I wondered. It's a different thing. It's more like... As the teenager, like if you were like, why am I not getting, yeah, like chased by girls by them? Or if you were able to see back then even like, okay, this is kind of cool that I can like be underscore. Or back then, were you like, where are my fans? Like, sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I always wanted like more mainstream success than I got. Because I think everyone yeah, does. Course, I think even if you're like the weirdest. I'm like, you're saying now yeah, I was fortunate, make, but I'm like, but let's go back to being 15. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but the thing is, it's like, what I also realize is that when I really look at what I like, I, and I don't want to say this in a condescending way about popular adoration, but I sort of do care about who likes my music. It, I don't just want the numbers. Of, like, like to me, millions of fans when i think about having millions of fans i think oh that would financially probably be nice but i don't emotionally need everyone in the world to love my music i like smart people liking my music that's like that might sound elitist but that's what i've always liked and that's what i've always had like i've always been like respected amongst my peers and i've had moments where it's broken through a little bit more to the masses but in general my music has been like an experience that was like about me connecting to people with like minds more so than it was about me connecting to the masses. Yeah, I get that. But then, yeah, I was just like, I wanted to ask, because of course, as humans, and especially as a teenager, I think we're, we are like, no, everyone like me, but no, 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 I don't want, you know, it's like this push pull of like, yeah, yeah, you want to really get through to people, but at the same time, oh no, this is good. So what, Um. so yeah, so you're then, how long did you, did you end up moving to this? Well, obviously you're in the States now, but I mean, did you eventually yeah. move to the States because like, is that graduate high school? Like, cause you put out several albums with the band, but then you're also doing solo stuff. How long did you stay in Australia and what was like the next move? Well, basically I finished high school. So I got to 18 or whatever. And then I toured America enough and my labels were based in the U S and I was like, this is the great adventure. It's time to do it. And I just got on the plane and came to the States. When, and, um, when you graduated high school? Yeah, when I was 18, and then I made another record and toured a lot and eventually, you know, got a girlfriend and we moved in together and it became like life started in the US. Um, and it's funny when you 
start make those kind of choices when you're younger you don't necessarily um realize that you're putting down roots and you're this is real life you know what i mean when you're young everything feels like spontaneous yeah and it can change at any point um but yeah basically from 18 onwards i was in the u.s i would go back to australia three sometimes four or five times a year to tour so i really maintained my career and connection and also my career got bigger in australia when i left which is what happens to i think a lot of people like, you know oh, in different wait, countries like they you, want of, to? you leave and everybody goes oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah but exactly so but but basically from then on i just my career was sort of more my life was based in the u.s and was that as working as ben lee or were you still part of the band yeah, when you moved? Yeah, yeah, when you yeah. moved... No, no, the band was all over band broke up before, before the end of high school oh, okay and yeah and what was that like then was the band cool with like you doing your own thing were they just all sort of like in it because you know you were the one that was sort of like hey you do this do this or of course i'm guessing bands breaking up can always yeah. be challenging and yeah, it was tricky in the sense that I think they felt that, um, you know, they were my friends and they kind of knew that I'd given them this opportunity. Um, and when you give opportunity, you're free to take it away. <laughs> Basically, I was like, I don't want to do the band anymore. And, you know, they were all smart enough to go. They knew they didn't really have a say in it. Like it was my songs and my, you know. And also, ultimately, look, the, the reality is, um, with the exception of Roni um, Hoffman, who she ended up also moving to LA and she plays in this band, Agenda, and she's like a proper musician, but she filled in at the end, but no one else was a musician. So I actually did the right thing by setting them free to go and pursue their destinies. It was not to be musicians, you know what I mean? Like it was a fun thing to do in high school. <laughs> yeah, you gave them an yeah. amazing experience for a couple of years. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's like all right, guys. And, and now, now that ride now is now over. real life starts. I'm going to do this properly. Get on with your business degrees, you know? <laughs> and so then when you're in USA properly touring, yeah, did you buy a house? I think you said. I don't know. Um, but like... Oh, no, I moved in. Yeah, we moved in. Got it, moved in. But but um, starting to set down roots. Yeah, Yeah, like what was that experience of sort of like you're living, you know, a musician's dream? Yeah, for me it was sort of like I was breaking away from the psychology of what I'd grown up with in Australia and in the Australian music scene. And what America does incredibly well is allows people to dream big dreams. I mean – if nothing else, and often it goes horribly wrong <laughs> as we're, as we're living true. through. This is very true. But, but there's no glass ceiling on the dream you're allowed to dream. And so I think a lot of my 20s were spent testing the limits of how big I was allowed to dream and what type of pushback I would get from my audience, from my friends, from my family, just being like, and, you know, even the things like I remember at one point I was, I'd been watching a lot of Andy Kaufman videos who i don't know if you know he's a comedian i loved um he was a deliberate provocateur and i just wondered in australia you always had to be humble Mm. and down to earth and i wondered what would happen if i just told everybody either i want to be australia's greatest songwriter of all time or i already am and that i've made and that this album i've made is the greatest australian album of all time i was like let's just do a social experiment and i just did it on this album breathing tornadoes when i was like 19 i guess and it was a huge controversy and it was like, it made me like a public enemy to a certain type of musician and fan. And, and a lot of what I was doing through those years was like playing with 
where am I legitimately? Like I, I need to be allowed to feel ambition. And I also naturally, uh, you know, you kind of have to go too far to find where, who you really are. And I've always believed that I've always thrown myself into like 100% immersive experiences because I've realized like you come out the other side and what you're left with is what's real. I love that. It sounds very simple, but at the same time, I'm guessing that was like living through a lot of shit. Like, so, okay, you're going to go out. I'm Australia's biggest this. And people are not responding well. What is the personal experience for that? Were you able to like sort of laugh at it and see that in the moment and just be like, I'm sort of like just playing this game or like, what was the reality? Like, did you have any like real pushback or being like, okay, maybe that wasn't the best approach? Yeah. Well, what I, what I realized was that it doesn't feel nice to be hated. (laughs) Um, and there are certain people like Andy Kaufman or even like Marilyn Manson or people like that, or, or like take Roger Stone who like, they almost thrive on being the bad guy in the wrestling match. And that that's not who I wanted to be. Like I got to play with that a little bit and go, what if I played the bad guy and didn't like that enough to stick with it. Um, But what I also realized was that like being an artist is about cultivating your own particular brand of insanity. (laughs) This is true. And um, the more committed you are, the less anybody will ever fuck with you again. So what I sort of realized is like each time I've taken a weird turn to other people, it looked weird, but what I knew I was doing was that like after Neil Young made that feedback album in the eighties, whatever it was, you know, or Tron, the weird robot album, no one ever told him what to do again. Like you basically, it's almost like going into prison and starting a fight on your first day, (laughs) like attacking so that people know not to mess with you. And I kind of realized that like unconsciously, I think a lot of what I was doing is what young people, all young people have to do is fight for the right to have your own journey, you know? And a lot of the destructiveness that I was playing with was basically telling people, don't mess with me. I'm going to do this the way I want to do it. And I'm going to burn bridges left, right and center and I don't care what you think. Even when I do, I don't care what you think. And that is how you earn the right to be the artist you want to be. And like, I meet a lot of artists who have had more considered and controlled and like um, refined branding through their careers. And they're regarded often more highly than I am, but they, they're also imprisoned more often. And they are slaves to their label or their management or their fans or whatever it is and i'm just like for better or worse i destroyed all possibility of that and i'm really thrilled from this space like i don't make demos for anybody like i don't do that you know like i make art that i want to make and sometimes it disappears into the ether and sometimes it connects with people and i'll accept that as the collateral damage of being a free artist, you know? Yeah. And I definitely, you know, I know that when I've thought of you and when I mentioned your, have mentioned your name to people when I was about to talk to you, that it's like, you definitely are respected and people are just like, yeah, that's one guy that like, he does 
him, you know, like the sort of thing and like whatever that means. And that I was going to ask you earlier about that, too, when you moved over to the States and like, yeah, when you know, making more records and stuff like that. If you had had any pushback with like artists and management and stuff or if because you came from this sort of punk and all, you're doing these sort of alternative things and stuff from the start, if people have always let you do what you wanted to do and trust because, yeah, I've worked in the music industry for a long time and can see like you think people are living their dreams and they kind of are. But then, yeah, there's all these people telling them what to do, say, where, mention, you need a new song, you need, there needs to be more pop, it needs to be more like this, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the fa- same thing you said, fan, a slave to their fans even, like yeah. afraid to change yeah. their direction or say certain things because they might lose those fans. Like, yeah, you said a lot of truth there. So did you have any pushback along the way and you were just able to yeah, be confident more- in yourself? Yeah, no, there's, there's, I mean, there's been so many stages. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've made music professionally now for 28 years, you know, so the, the, I would say the, um, you know, uh, it's almost like the decolonization of my creative process um, has been a very gradual process and continues to be. And that has involved making compromises and listening to advice many times and not being satisfied with the results of it and in some ways that's those things are like the most painful the times where you listen and out of the the most naive and purest part of yourself you go this person really does seem to know what they're talking about and then you just feel like heartbroken when it because what happens is unless you're like beyonce you know or taylor swift where you're like there's an there is a certain type of artist that everything they do will be met with a certain degree of consideration or Radiohead where they are now. You know, there's like five artists in the world like that. For everyone else, I would say there's probably at least a 90% chance your project will be met with failure. Um, at least, at least 90%. And when you fail and you will fail, all you have left is your feeling about the piece of work you made and your feeling about the integrity with which you made it. And I compromised myself enough times on things that didn't work where what I was left with is the memory of compromise. Whereas on other projects that failed, that I did exactly what I wanted, I feel like, yeah, man, I still feel good about that. That was cool. Yeah. And, and that was the big lesson for me. It wasn't pushback. It was to do with like, my own conscience about the way I've gone through decision-making. And, and I remember when, especially as the industry was changing, like when I was, I forget when it was, like maybe like 2002 or whatever, when like the Strokes came out and like rock music and alternative music went to like another generation, which were actually kind of pretty close in age to me, but because I'd started so right, much true. Before, <laughs> it felt like another generation. Um, I remember just having the realization that like, okay, I may have passed the time and passed the moment or the window where what I do will be considered within the context of what's cool. So how am I going to feel about my work with each project? And it's been like, I mean, I've had every type of experience. I've, you know, I've been in the studio with like Bruno Mars, like before he blew up and got, super famous and going like this isn't that fun to me to me it wasn't that fun making music with him 
And they said, no, not for me. And then I saw him go on and make a gazillion dollars. And part of me in my mind goes, oh, I should have really hitched myself to that wagon while it was moving. But I was being authentic. That wasn't that fun to me. The space he wanted to make music from was not where I wanted to. And there's no disrespect to it. They're different vibrations, you know? So it's just been a process of like trying to own, like what do I think is cool? And then standing behind it 100%. Yeah, I love that. And like I said, I've definitely seen seen how challenging that can be. And it's it's yeah, I think that most people just don't know that enough. It, it looks like if you've made you've made it, whatever, you you know, you had an album, whatever, you toured, then like everything's great and everything's great and like it, whatever, it just gets easier. And in many ways it gets harder. <laughs> right? I know. But you know what's interesting? And I just don't say this to brag. I just think this is probably just true objectively about one of my strengths. I think I have like really good taste. Like I have a refined taste in like what culturally is good and worthwhile. Like the stuff I like is, it's just, I just believe it. It's like, it's good. I have good taste. So, um, well, and you're confident I in what you like instead of being like, well, I like this, but I don't know. Like, cause I, yeah, but, and I can recognize like when things are genuinely like, groundbreaking and when they like challenge me and you know I, I anyway it's just one of again there's a i have a lot of deficits but <laughs> that's one of my strengths but i think part of what i've had to learn is to trust that taste because there are a lot of artists and musicians who are very talented but they actually don't have very good taste and then you become dependent on other people's taste so you need to bring in a producer who's got good taste to tell you actually what is a good drum sound? What is cool? Does that line in that song, you know, I've always thought of it in a very basic way. It's like, for me, I'm like a heterosexual male. I've always felt like my audience should either want to be friends with me or sleep with me through a song. That's like, cause that's how I feel about music. Like when I listen to music, I either want to be best friends with the artist or shag them. That is what makes good pop music or good rock music. And I think for me, because that was that sort of always been my compass. And it's like, it sounds reductive, but it's not because it's like, those are experiences of intimacy. What we basically want is intimacy with the artist. And if we feel a sexual charge with them, it's natural. We'd want that to be consummated in some way. And if we want it to be a more confident, like whispering secrets to each other, understanding that's good too, you know, but I don't know where I was going with that. But, but I think, um, I think <laughs> sometimes I just start talking, but I think the point of it is that I trust the compass with which I respond to art. And there's, I, I see artists who are technically better than me, but they don't have, their taste isn't as good and they, and they, they have trouble understanding how that's going to play to their audience or to an audience like they it's almost like they're trying it's marketing it's yeah. like how they're going to get a subversive idea across they sometimes don't know it's like it's either too on the nose or too subtle or it's like not making an idea appealing that it's just a process like songwriting is a process and so anyway it's all a bit about being of trusting these different compasses and kind of going how um, I'm going to shape my entire decision-making process around what I think is cool. 
That's pretty cool. And and I, yeah, I think uh, somewhat what you're saying may be slightly different, but yeah, I do think that people can have a hard time trusting themselves. Humans, artists of all different forms, that that's where there can be the real thing is that you're not trusting that. Yeah, you can have a producer steering you a certain way or whatever and not trusting what what it is that you're confident in, what you think you want to do, say, write, sound like, whatever. So you're more... But see, the, but the thing is, like, unless the vision is really strong sometimes oftentimes those producers are right yeah there's some awesome producers like if you if you're if you're not if your taste isn't great mm. then you actually do need True. those gatekeepers to go let me help you translate this video. yeah so it you can know be and, bonuses and, and deficits there i don't put that down like i think that's but for me it sort of hasn't worked out well yeah it just those types of people have not meshed with i need i'm like a a little bit of like a lone wolf type character. Like, even though I like collaborating, I need my space. I need to be left alone to make the thing I want to make. Otherwise, I'm not going to be happy with it. Yeah. So anyway, we're all just trying to like learn about ourselves and like run the car the way it's meant to run. Yeah, that's true. And the car will change how it, it runs as, <laughs> as you grow. Exactly. Exactly. It's me, Trisha, bringing you a brief, awesome interruption to tell you about my podcast partner, Blissoma, authentic green beauty. Cutting edge chemistry meets traditional herbal knowledge for the best of both words. And now, while I am not a beauty blogger by any means, I have been using organic, green, clean, all the buzzwords, beauty and skin products for 10 years now. And um, it can be a challenge to find ones that work for you and ones that are actually legit and not just greenwashing. This brand I am obsessed with, and I'm not just saying that. I've been using them for over a month now, and it has radically changed the appearance, the feel of my skin, everything. One of my favorite products is the Restore Oil. It's a masterpiece of nutritious oils to help keep a huge range of skin types glowing and supple. It's honestly, they say that you'll think it's magic and it is like magic. I use it day and night, but I've also been using several of their products. Feel free to DM me at your geologist and I'll let you know. But they also, if you go to blissoma.com, they have like support and a quiz to really help you find the right skin products for you. So go to blissoma.com and you can also use code CLAIMIT for 20% off all oils and serums. Seriously, you got to pay attention to what's in your skincare products. This company is amazing and it works. Okay, so now mentioning trust, <laughs> trusting yourself, but also immersive experiences. I know you wrote an entire album about ayahuasca. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Which well, is a, yeah. sounds like a very immersive experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, for me, that's what's interesting is some of the uh, spaces we're talking about where I have a lot of confidence creatively, I have lacked in my own personal journey. You know, and that's really, I think that's why now is, feels like a powerful time for me because they're both at a more mature stage. Whereas before there was all of this, like, I had the fight and I had the moxie in the creative space. 
But when I looked at myself in the mirror, it was like, who am I? How do I stand just in this universe? How do I feel about it? I didn't trust my own instinct, you know? And that led to me doing what you do if you are a person in existential angst and a curious person and a kind of mystical person is you go on a journey. And that took me through a lot of different, like, you know, whatever you call them, spiritual groups or kinds of like outlooks or philosophies or substances or kind of going like, I was looking for an answer. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, ayahuasca and, you know, working with that was like a big, a big thing. And I continue to, I'm a big believer in psychedelics and the possibility of them. And so, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, and like, so that's an interesting thing of like knowing, yeah. So trusting yourself in the creative process, but then looking, is that, cause also then it's like, yeah, you might have this confidence in making music, but then, oh, you're also a human in the world. And like, yeah, in relationship. Yeah, exactly. That's where I think a lot of it comes up is right. Like, okay, well, wanting love, wanting to be seen, even though if you might have this music career, so you are seen and heard, but like intimately seen and heard, like this seeking that thing. So, uh, yeah, like what you think, what was it? Because, and you mentioned some things I listened to you on the conspirituality. Am I saying that right? spirituality podcast of like getting into these like different groups and stuff and that yeah was that sort of most of them like a friend like hey check this out and then it starts out good and then being like okay well it's more like for me it's like my hunger for experience has always been quite self-generated so i would hear whispers of something and be like i want to know what that is it's the same way i've been with music like the way you keep up with what's cool is you hear things and you go, oh, I want to follow up on that. Who are the people involved? Let me see what other projects they've done. Who produced it? What, have, what kind of, you know, you, you follow, you, you, you do this thing. It's like you follow all these clues. And so for me, all of these scenarios were very much like me, almost like bullheaded, um, busting my way into these different bizarre scenarios in India and, you know, everywhere, all over the place, trying to learn. And, um, yeah, it's really funny how um, I think one of, the, one of the things I had to, I think probably the same side of me that allowed me to understand what a pop song is and that there's a formula. The flaw in that is that you start looking for formulas in other areas where there aren't formulas. And human beings are deeply susceptible to being sold a formula that resolves the conflicts uh, we might feel in our lives or in the universe. And that's where things like gurus and spiritual teachers and programs and all of that, that's where all of that takes off because where there's pain, there's sales. Yeah, it's so interesting because like listening to that podcast and a couple more of theirs, like I've noticed where like, oh, I've been like right on the edge of a lot of these things that people got involved in and sort of maybe, not, I don't know, turned wrong or just turned like, you know, where I'd be like, oh, okay, I'll go to your breath work thing or I'll go to the this or, oh, okay, I'll go to that forum and take that thing. And I would be like, cool, that was cool. And then even like learn some things and be like, wow, amazing. I got some real insights. Like I did ayahuasca once. Cool. I had an amazing insight, but I don't feel like I ever need to do it again. Like not that nothing against you. Like that's just who I am that I'm like. It's a full personality. <laughs> like my, my thing is like, my my thing more is like find what you like and let it kill you. Like I, I almost I, just choked on my water. <laughs> my personality 
veers towards, and this is probably the part of me that like meshes well with rock and roll. It's like, it's, um, I can't remember the word for it. It's um, not extravagant. Um, extreme? Yeah, extreme, but it's more like like too overindulgence. Like, over, you know, like it's, there's a side of me that I just don't know when to stop. And I mean, look at me. I'm like, uh, that honestly, sometimes the biggest, the, the best advice about something like having a marriage or having a career in music is like, just don't stop. Like stopping is what ends it. <laughs> and, um, and I'm just like compelled often towards uh, seeing how far down the thing can go. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely like a different person. Like, cause it's had me wondering like, what is it about me? That lack sort of, of moderation. Lack That's I think of like, like lack of moderation. Interesting. Yeah. No. Cause I've just noticed, like I said, where I've been like parts or like invited to things and like done and sort of just like oh and even got like some great like wow that was amazing i learned some amazing things i have just my even like the nixium right stuff like yeah, how yeah. they start i'm like i'm sure if somebody would invite me to those one of those workshops i would have went and been like wow amazing but then i probably never would have went back because i'd be like cool i got some cool knowledge like that's just who i am like the like yeah but there's there's this other thing i'm talking about which you know uh, you probably it's not your thing um <laughs> There's like a Rambo, William Blake, like derangement of the senses type experience, right. which is more what I've been drawn and to. And I which don't is like, like, I don't like losing control. I don't like doing, yeah. like ayahuasca was a big like, thing for me to make because I was even like, I yeah. don't like losing myself. I don't like, let me drink wine all the time. Sure. I used to smoke pot when I was young. And then when I moved to California and it was so strong, I could never smoke it again. Like, cause I like, so yeah, I like a sense of control so even ay ayahuasca i did it only because it was like a ceremony where it's controlled and yes there and like so that's why i eventually said yes to it but again yeah so i don't i don't like yeah which i do have friends yeah. that are like, let me take and the acid and let me okay i'm gonna go on this adventure and so i totally get that totally. but yeah i'm like and i don't even mean i don't even just mean like drugs i mean experiences like i'm sort of like overwhelm me right do this like swallow me whole. <laughs> Let me find out. Let me find out. Got what it. This yeah, like. and I'm just like, hmm. um, and, yeah. <laughs> well, but you're, but you're, you're ultimately look. I, I think both of what our approaches are in different ways geared to um, self-preservation, just in different ways. You're by putting a toe in the water, you can make a much more informed decision about what you want to do with your life and where you want to go. It's like it's actually very smart my way is more like high stakes gambling with like big wins and big big losses and um but you know i i i stand by i've made terrible mistakes and i've hurt people and i've karmically got things to answer for in terms of um my involvement in certain things and who i dragged into it and you know all these sorts of things but I also always remember hearing this, um, you know, spiritual or whatever it was, like affirmation, interesting one that was like, sometimes the spiritual path is best suited to the criminal because he has the courage to do the crime. And I've always perceived myself as someone with the courage to do the crime. And that is, but you risk messing up. You know, you you're, it's dangerous. So, you know... This is what rock and roll was built for. It was built for people with this type of disposition who go, let's do all of it. And so you don't have to. <laughs> so how did you, though, in, in those sorts of situations, how did you know when you were like, 
out. I mean, were they things that like it just devolved dissolved on those or like and you know, maybe it's one in particular. I don't know how what I don't even know how many things revolved yeah. in. But yeah, like even I know well, the, something yeah. and I think that you might have been a part yeah where it's like i noticed i went to these people just like over years these people that i loved that they were really getting different and every time i saw them starting to like lose their sense like it was just weird uh like these people that had the biggest hearts and were so great and they still were and they just yeah just sort of to change and and it was just a weird and then still kept trying to bring me on to things and i was like i don't even understand you guys do not seem happy but it was like oh but that's because we're learning you know like yeah. They're learning, oh, but because we're learning about all these things and the healing or just like, you know, like, and that's why. But it was just like, wow, something is not right here. Well, you have to gaslight yourself to stay in any type of program like that. I know, I mean, I have no, um, uh, I speak very openly about this stuff, but I know you're talking about the ayahuasca. And the, well, and that was different things. N- you but know, yes. system and that whole group and everything. Yeah, I don't even really know but, what uh, it was actually like called. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but anyway, but yeah, but. But yeah, I mean, well, that's the thing. Like you're, it's the exact, it's what we're talking about. It's like you saw the obliteration of what you knew with a smart, like warning alarms went off for you. And, but <laughs> you I couldn't like, get through. Uh, I didn't even know what to say to these people. And I didn't, I was yeah. so blown away and I didn't know. But like, yeah, like so how to. Well, what I saw, what I saw was I, I saw the same thing. And I was like, wow, these people are nothing like they were six yeah. months ago. There's something going on, and I was like, "Let me have a taste." So, so um, let me see so, what's so, happening. You know, but that's what I'm saying. It's about um, it's about where you stand in response to danger. Um, I think we probably both saw the same red flags, <laughs> but I went like, "Yeah, give me some of that." Let shit, me you see know? my dark um, shit in my soul, like because I mean, yeah, they yeah. were explaining it in a way as like, "Oh, this needs to happen for like, you know." Well, that I don't, I don't necessarily believe any of the justifications right. for why people stay in these kind of cults and groups and stuff. But I think in a larger sense, the test you put yourself under, like Dostoevsky used to sit and write in the village square, which was like total chaos. And that's where he wrote Crime and Punishment. Like, it's that type of thing. Like the same part of me that said, what happens if I tell everyone in Australia I'm the greatest singer-songwriter of all time, like it's dangerous. What would happen? I want to experience it. It's been the same thing with some of these groups, you know, where I've been like, what happens if I give myself over to this? What comes out the other side? And wow. again, like what I said is um, I have massive regrets from a place of hindsight, but I stand by my investigative experiences <laughs> in the same way that like Hunter Thompson would have stood by them, that you sometimes have to drive yourself insane in life. It's part of understanding what sanity is. It's part of understanding how, like, it's funny, like as someone that has gone to like some terrible extremes in my life, I have one of the most stable family lives in my current family, like parenting and marriage, than anyone I know. And I attribute that to, you know, the Bjork song, Hyperballad, how she talks about like, I go to the cliffs and I throw off plates and everything. And I do all this before you wake up so I can be happy and feel safe at home with you. That I view that for me, the experimentation with these destructive models is part of how I've come to know who I am and how I've come to take care of myself and be stable. Yeah. Um, I had to throw myself off these cliffs and I'm just grateful I came back. 
How did you, yeah. that, but that's yeah. what, yeah, it was sort of like how in, in one or in any of those situations, like, where, how do you get, was, is it, you know, someone else like waking you up? Is it that it's dissolving itself? Like, how do you end up pulling yourself out of them and being like, wait a minute. Okay. Okay. So like, look at like what's happening in America now with, you know, Trump and QAnon and everything. And there's, there's, you know, possibly hundreds of thousands of people who have entered into like a type of psychosis you know, they will exit it. They'll leave it. There are going to be many different reasons they leave it. But I believe in essentially nature is basically healing. And if you cut the tail off a lizard, it grows back or whatever the expression is. Or if you cut your arm, it scabs. There is a, there is a tendency towards healing. And I think when we are profoundly wrong, we get different types of invitations to correct that mistake, whether it's from friends and family, whether it's our own conscience. And I can say, for instance, like, so I got involved with this guru in India and we actually, me and I only got married in India. And um, there was this guru called Narayaniyama. And it was actually in a series of ayahuasca ceremonies where I saw how I'd been lying to myself and that lies begin like a tiny crack. And then they become like these cancerous growths that take over your entire experience where you cannot admit your doubts or your dissenting thoughts because you're building a whole life structure on a presumption of what the truth is, you know? So for me, psychedelics helped break me out of that, you know? Mm. the, uh, this other experience you're talking about with, with the ayahuasca. Yeah, that's what's interesting. Yeah, because that person yes. was holding – yeah. Like I feel like doing ayahuasca was yes. part of you're doing this studying, whatever, self-work, and you have to be doing the ayahuasca regularly. But doesn't that And so the ayahuasca is jive. what sort of woke you up to? <laughs> yes. But doesn't that jive with everything mystics have always said about consciousness – which is that like we awaken from one prison to another, to another, to another, and we try and free ourselves subsequently from each one. Like that's totally my experience. Like, you know, I know a lot of people who have been rescued from a bad relationship by another bad relationship. Right. <laughs> it's like it's like someone goes, I can offer you a 10% improvement. Right. <laughs> and you take that mm-hmm. and you but so then with that, with that experience we were talking about, um, when you know one of my friends left and sort of expressed her doubts i just got very quiet with myself and all i can say is the thought that came into my mind was you can get off this bus now it was just like that it was like if you want to get off you can get off here and i hadn't felt it was possible before Mm. that so i think a lot of things in life like making creative changes and stuff are like that it's these little Mm -hmm. moments where you realize you are not beholden to a previous commitment. Like Salvador Dali said, I reserve the right to contradict myself. I love that because I think the only way forward is to have the courage to contradict yourself and to say, yes, I did think that a year ago and now I don't. And let's go in the new direction. Yeah, I love that. And I, I mean, I think it's so true. Like people stay in things that they don't like love aren't happy in because like the fear of the fear of something new, but also, but, oh, but this is what I've defined myself as or something. And then like, yeah, these little messages of just all of a sudden getting in it, like, 
I thought I had a happy life, you know, like, yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy. But like, or like there's space to be happier, you know, like hearing this sort of thing, like, cause we can convince ourselves my life's good. It's good. It's so much better than this person's or this or this relationship or this job, like rationalizing whatever. And then if you just hear this voice, but what if this, <laughs> like, <gasps> wait a minute, totally. wait a minute, there's more space for joy and happiness or freedom or whatever it is. <laughs> like, Absolutely. And well, you know, it's very painful to look genuinely and authentically at the self-made prisons that we find ourselves in. Because often, you know, I was listening to an interview on another podcast recently where this woman talked about being in Poland during a um, time of revolution and how she said what she's reliving right now is like, this political divide that is being it's interesting because a lot of like kind of more like hippie or new age kind of people are going the real issue is the division we should be bringing people together we should be and what she was saying is she's like no what happens in your lifetime you will live through this you will lose friends because of political differences it'll happen once or twice there'll be people whose house you used to go into and you won't go into it anymore because that Part of what, what, why politics is important is it's how we find our allies and our tribes. And there are times where those change. And it's painful to shift alliances and to change and to admit that Mary, who I felt so close to last week, now I cross the street when I see her coming. This is not Mary Lattimore. I just realized I have oh. one friend called Mary. <laughs> you're like, Mary, if you're listening, it's not you. I just I picked exactly a general like, name out. She wouldn't be listening, but I was just like, yeah, I was like, I'm not talking to you, Mary Lattimore. Um, I feel very aligned with your politics. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I think it's really scary. It's really scary for people. Um, but in some ways, I think this is where the training of being an artist over the course of a career, it's almost like I once heard that one of the reasons that women age, live longer, is because of their menstrual cycles, they experience adaptation to the, their bodies changing on a monthly level. So even just bleeding and being an acceptance of bleeding, there is a um, men have a much more like stagnant view of what good health is. So they're less likely to go to doctors. They're, they're more freaked out by their own blood, by changes in their body, by you know, and um, and in a way, women. Um, they're, they're more connected to life as a evolving experience than men are often. So this is just one thing I heard. And I think artists are more than, say, executives or academics because as artists, we, um, or, or blue collar, you know, because as artists, we, we have to die and change all the time. We have to let go of who we were six months ago regularly. And in some ways, that's been an amazing training, I think, for life. Yeah, very true. And yeah, very true with politics right now. It is, you know, I was I was talking to my sister last night that like we neither of us were not somebody that used, you know, years ago would ever be like, oh, yeah, I'm political. But it's like right now I, I it is hard to feel like when people are not. Yeah, that are just not like, oh, we don't need it. Like, no, like, let's change the subject or I don't know. It's just like it's such an intense time right now that it's like, how can you not think about the state of the world? Or what is that? What is that meme that's going around about like, oh, it's really easy to say that you don't care about politics when like 
I don't know what it's like when you're not thinking about anybody that has a different skin color than you or economic bracket or what or, you know, sexual orientation or whatever, like. Exactly. Like, great. And no, it's very privileged. And any, yeah, anyone that is anyone that I have seen act like that has been a white person, to be honest. (laughs) I'm sure there are people of different colors out there not saying that. But um, exactly. Anyway, I don't have a smooth transition for this. But since (laughs) Jason Mraz asked me to ask you, I have to make sure to ask you about what is about being a death doula? Is that something that you did in the past? How did that come to happen? Is that well? Do you want me to do the transition for you? I'll do the okay. Transition do the for transition, you. Um, right? We're talking so, about the politics. So, so you know, a lot of what my um, you know, my first password that I ever had on a phone or a computer or whatever it was was the word change, and I I've always believed that exactly what we were just talking about that health and happiness and dynamism in this world is related to the embrace of change and what i saw through a lot of my work with psychedelics was that it was like this um like a psychedelic journey is a concentrated period of you know several hours where you are forced to let yourself die or your idea of yourself or your control and step into something new. And this is like an old idea from like Tibetan Buddhism and, you know, the idea that death is, is when, when we talk about death and practicing dying, it's not just about a physical death. It's about how we let go of each day and how we let go of, um, you know, painful limiting beliefs or experiences and move on to, you know, something else. So, I sort of just realized that um, I wanted to better understand change. And as you're probably now getting to know me, what do I do? I throw myself into the most extreme and most confronting way of exploring that, which is working with the dying. And so, you know, I studied, they call it death midwifery and um, did some hospice volunteer work and all of that and everyone's always like oh do you still do that it's like i never intended it to be like a path that was like a job it was more a skill set i wanted that had to do with um like when i'm on a stage i realize that i'm basically in a room with say there's 300 people there there's 300 dying people and that they have a much bigger problem than whatever it is i'm singing about which is confronting their own mortality and that is really what's eating away at them. You know what I mean? Like they might on the surface be like, oh, the line to the bar's really long. Could you get me a beer? Or, oh, tomorrow I've got this job interview or I haven't done this yet for school or whatever it is. But, but at the heart, or I've got a pimple I don't like or, you know, whatever it is. But at the heart of it, they're really, we all are terrified of our own mortality. And I wanted to find within myself the ability to, hold space for people to not be in denial of that experience, whether that's my audience, whether that's my friend, whether that's my kids, whether it's my wife, whether it's someone in hospice care, but to be able to sit there and basically be like, yeah, yeah, you're, you're dying. So am I. And I'm sitting here and I'm standing here and um, I've got no answers for you, but I can be a brother to you. I can be a friend to you. I think that energy is something I wanted 
in life, in my music, and in my friendships, and my marriage. So it was all about that, really. And so, yeah, you said you took like a midwifery sort of course for yeah. this. <laughs> I mean, and that had you known anybody that did that? You just like were explored, like, how can I, you know, learn more about dying? Or Yeah, I think I'd heard people, I think I'd heard people talk about it. And then, you know, you get on Google and <laughs> Bob's your uncle. <laughs> and so that's like... <laughs> I'm guessing it's people, or yeah, so the people that, and did you end up supporting people through their transition? Yeah. Yeah, I did some of that. I was never there at the moment. I was there before. I was there after. And I was, and, you know, what I loved about it was that one of the principles that I learned about that I really resonated with was like, you got to have different menus. It's like different customers at a restaurant. There are going to be some people that want to have a heart to heart and talk about their regrets and talk about their fears and all that. And there are other people that are going to want to watch reruns of Cheers. And there's no right or wrong way to die. But you being able to bear witness to someone in whatever process they want to be through, go, to go through, that that was quite moving to me. And I think about that with parenting a lot. Like, like with your, your kids, you, you can't, you really can't control their process or nope. they're not going to do their process the way you think they should do it. And being able to truly be a friend or a mentor is to like, is to honor where they are in their process and not judge it and let them have that experience. And that's a lot of stuff I learned through that type of work. Yeah. And, and so that too, is that people that are terminally ill? I mean, I think that when people, when people, I'm just out myself, when I think of death duel, like the Ooh. first thing that popped in my mind is like that it's people that are wanting to end their life, but is it people that are just naturally at the end or it could be either? No. Yeah. The, what I was, the, the, like hospice volunteering is generally like people when you get put on hospice, when medical care has kind of reached the end of it, yeah. uh, what it can do aside from this, you know, maintenance and things like that, but you're not going to take up a hospital bed lying in a sort of sterile environment when you know when you might have a couple of weeks or a couple of months or whatever left you it's really nice if you get to either be in a hospice which is a place of dedicated care for people who are dying or to be an in-home have in-home hospice where care comes to your house and you can yeah. be around your family or around your things or but but no it's not about it was not about like um euthanasia or anything like that it was just people who were you know, you sort of get the death sentence at a certain point. We all do. And the doctor says, basically, you've, um, you know, you're, you're being put on hospice. And that's, that is when there's room to have these types of support. Got it. So like people that were in hospice and you weren't like the hospice carer, but were someone that was also like coming in to support them. Yeah. Do emotionally, some volunteering, go to people's houses or go, yeah, exactly. Emotionally supportive. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I think that, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing I'm not the only person that would hear death doula and think that, yeah, you're like doing, <laughs> helping people. Yeah. You're like, go towards the light. Towards the light. <laughs> you're like, have them some secret potion or like something that you're. <laughs> Is he wearing a red hat? Go the other way. Go the other way. <laughs> wow so yeah that's an interesting um yeah space in that you just felt naturally drawn to wanting to experience that and hold space for people in that way well it's just what's fun you know like i mean to me all of these choices 
you can break them down and analyze them and go through all of these different, you know, reasons you think you did this or that. But I've always kind of like done what sounded fun and or interesting followed. Yeah. Interesting. Followed my interest. Yeah. I mean, and I think that living as an artist for your life in different forms and that's there that so many people are just like locked into, you know, my work, my entertainment, my friends, like everyone, like, yeah. so many people are like just stuck in their like cycles. And so like, they don't even even remember like how to follow an interest. They don't even know, like, you know, like that there, it's, it, I, I feel many people don't even allow interest to surface. <laughs> like they don't have, they don't allow space. Well, yeah, <laughs> it could potentially be one of the, um, the, dark sides of capitalism is um you know that we don't essentially live in a society where we're taught that our interests have immense value to them um whereas most innovation really does come from people following their interests or trying to solve a problem that they're consumed by so true yeah we're taught like yeah, to follow the interest that like, what can I get from this? It's like, we need to already know yeah. what can I get from this? Not just to like, oh, I, that sounds like an interesting experience that could serve me in some way. Like that's not enough for most people. Like, what is this? Give me yeah, the information yeah. this will give to me right now before I sign up. <laughs> yeah. And not knowing is, um, it's okay. Like as you're having an experience, I think you're not under any requirement to know or anticipate the ways in which it's going to add to you and change your life. Like, I think the spark of excitement about something is enough to justify involvement with it usually, and it will add to you in unanticipated ways. Yes, I love that you said that. I'm so on board. Are you in a, a place I'm going to pull up something on my screen? Sure, okay. I can see. So I have... Every guest pool, these are um, phrases that go on my product line, keychains. So this is the keychain. And I have every guest pick not necessarily which phrase they like the most, but which one they feel they would want as a reminder right now in their life and why. Mm, I think I trust the timing of my life. And why is that one um, standing out to you? Uh, I is kind of interesting for our family because we're packing up to go spend time in Australia oh. um, for the first time since I was 18. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and so we're going to go for, you know, at least a year. And um, it's a very big move, but it feels like if ever, why not now? True, true. Um, and it's quite mysterious. Like we don't quite know what we're going to or what we're, aside from a better handled pandemic, it's a little hard to know what opportunities are going to be there or what, but we're all feeling it feels right and we're trusting it and we're doing it. And it's a big, it's a big endeavor. Um, and I'm just trying to stay in trust with it. Awesome. Yep. That sounds like a good one for yep. <laughs> right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> what is a go-to to raise your joy levels? I mean, I, for me, talking to my wife like just the fun we have together talking is really what makes me happy um i think our marriage is it's almost like the compass for like how well i'm doing emotionally in general if our marriage is good i'm generally doing good you know um so yeah just connecting with her and 
talking and laughing. I love that. Um, okay, ask everybody to apply this phrase to their own life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So it could be like a habit, a way of being that you naturally fall into. So what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is... Well, I think what's easiest for me is pushing. You know, like the same, the 14-year-olds who got signed, right. the, the guy who did the 500 ayahuasca ceremonies, oh was like, like pushing and... No, it wasn't that. <laughs> okay, I was like, pushing. Shit. Yeah, yeah. But pushing, um, pushing to get things done is, uh, it's kind of comes naturally to me. It's not, not always what's best. I notice like letting things breathe and having patience and um, reassessing potential and possibility periodically. And before I make a big decision, like that, that is stuff I'm learning more as I'm getting older. Yes. Great. I'm glad you're learning that and seeing that. <laughs> okay. The last question is the name of the podcast is Claim It because I believe so often we're putting our feelings outside of ourselves. Like, oh, once I do this, have this, be this, then I'll feel enough, worthy, successful. So often we're chasing these feelings. And so I feel that we can just claim those feelings every day. You can claim your worth right now, your enoughness, your success, your fulfillment. Sometimes you need to claim them every moment of the day because <laughs> your mind can play tricks on you. So what are you claiming for yourself right now? Well, I think in a, in a, there's, there's a sense of, you know, everything you heard me talking on that Conspirituality podcast about how my experiences in the past have given me the perspective to be able to address some of the political uh, issues, psychological issues around it with QAnon and why people are drawn to conspiracies and this type of thinking, like I've had to reclaim and honor experiences that I had noticed I'd kind of, um, I felt ashamed about. So it's quite, it's been quite interesting because at whatever level of expertise, quote unquote, I have through these experiences, I wouldn't have without having made these mistakes, you know? So I think a lot of what I'm doing right now is like owning the eclectic nature of my journey and it, with all of its ups and downs and foibles and mistakes and, you know, disasters and, <laughs> and successes and everything and, um, and allowing myself to speak from as opposed to like hiding certain parts of my past or my personality, actually speaking from a more holistic sense of like, this is who I am, this is what my history is. Let me, let me speak from that space. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's so yeah. important for all of us to do because I'm sure everyone that has something they look back or things they look back and like sort of wince at. And I've had to do a lot of self-healing myself on that because it doesn't feel good to have those moments where you feel like you have to hide from your past self and that, yeah, like knowing that yeah. somehow, yeah, it got you where you are, got you, it served you somehow, even if you're like, I cannot believe I did that. I wrote, I share affirmations every week and I wrote this one last week and it really resonated with me and other people like, I am not my past choices. I forgive myself for what already happened and show up as the person I wish I was back then in the now. Mm. So often we can feel like, nice. you know, like you don't want to be like, oh, I can't believe I did that. But oh, it's all whatever. It's all worked out or learning. But then you're still like, but I hurt somebody or I did this. And so then like, 
how can I forgive myself while also seeing right now if that happened, maybe that's not the choice I would have made because it's a weird thing our brains can do. You know, you want to see positive, but also accept the this and the that. That's right. And <laughs> self-punishment, the self-punishment that we do never really helps. Like there's like, you know, there's a bit of going like, huh, okay, that was a mistake. Not going to do that again. But then endlessly flagellating yourself over it. It's just extremely unproductive. Yeah. And that's, we are so hard yeah. as, on ourselves as humans. And it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, yeah, it, it doesn't serve us. We have to constantly be rehealing yeah. ourselves and reclaiming and all of that. Thank you so, so yeah. much for everything that, that you shared with us and for you living your life your way and doing it. It's really awesome and empowering. And um, yeah. I think you are a highly respected individual and musician. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, right on. It's nice to talk to you. Okay. Wow. So stoked that I got to have that conversation with Ben. So many great nuggets in there. You know, things that he talked about applying to his own life, but I think we can all apply to our own lives. For more, um, you can find Ben Lee on Instagram at Ben Lee Music. I'll link to his website. You know, his music is out there in the world. He has been around for a while, as you heard. <laughs> for full show notes, go to yourjoyologist.com slash podcast. And for all things me, go to at yourjoyologist. So as a final thought... Let's think about like, you know, we were talking sort of at the end there about following interests. What is something right now that feels interesting to you that you could explore? You know, maybe it's something that you used to do, spend time thinking about wanting to do in the past, just like an interest, you know, letting yourself dream, explore, follow an interest. And it doesn't have to be this big thing. It can even be just like Googling something that comes up to your mind. Trying something new, stopping by that restaurant that opened and you thought looked interesting. <laughs> Don't always have to think so big. But what is something that is, you know, calling to you right now as an interest? And make sure to check out my daily inspiration app. It's called Own Your Awesome. It has hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations. You can get it in the Google Play and the Apple App Store. It's only $3.99. You can gift it to friends as well. And my whole product line is at shop.yourjoyologist.com. Great for giving gifts to yourself and to others. You know, awesome affirmations and powerful phrases to motivate people in all sorts of different ways. We got things like fuck your fears to I trust the timing of my life. So <laughs> something to inspire, empower all the people in your life, including yourself. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you haven't yet, please subscribe. Please leave a review. You can screenshot it to me at podcast at your joyologist, and I'll send you a gift. Share about the episode and tag me at your joyologist, and I will enter you to win a box of goodies. Why not share about it? Why not? 